0: All right, well, this morning the children are leaving with Chris, and there's a lot of people missing, like I said earlier. But uh, this morning we're going to enter Genesis chapter 32. And as you enter there and find Genesis chapter 32, let me tell you something about my son Chase. You know, Chase used to come to the church part of the sound system, but Chase has a new activity. Chase has entered what is called the elite pro wrestling. Yeah, and he loves it. But he pretty sore this morning. I mean, he went last night and did a lot of training yesterday. It happens to be a local circuit in Odin and in Washington. And they travel back and forth on certain weekends. And he's training now to be part of the wrestling community that actually performs in both those local cities. So I thought that was pretty entertaining, the fact that he has now chosen to do that. He loves wrestling. He loves everything about wrestling. Of course, when it comes to professional wrestling, There is no one like the greatest entity when it comes to professional wrestling, which is the World Wrestling Entertainment, better known simply as WWE. Each week, the WWE proudly offers two nights of wrestling entertainment. There is Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown. Each of those two nights actually have each night itself. A viewing audience that exceeds 2 million people watching each event on those particular nights. It's incredible how powerful and how large WWE has become. In fact, they have now over 100 wrestling superstars and they have an annual revenue that exceeds $1 billion. They are by far the largest wrestling entity on a professional circuit. Now, according to the WrestlingEstate.com I found, it said the greatest wrestling match ever was re- during WrestleMania 25 with the face-off of, listen, The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels. Now, some of you may watch wrestling. You may know exactly who those people are. <laughs> Over here, I see their second yes. The Bleacher Report would disagree with the Wrestling Estate and said the best wrestling match ever was Bret Hart versus Owen Hart in a steel cage match. That sounds rather interesting. I never want to be in a steel cage match because it doesn't sound like anything that would actually be beneficial for me to actually get out of there and survive. Uh Uh-uh. Hopefully Chase will never be in a steel cage match. But enough about the WWE or Chase and his new wrestling effort. Because today, we actually then talk about what I think, what I believe is not one of the greatest wrestling events ever, but the greatest wrestling match of all time ever. It's better than anything you can find on WWE, Monday Night Raw, or Friday Night Smackdown. It involves our conniving sidekick from last week, Jacob, and his opponent, his opponent would be, well, it would be God, is who Jacob then wrestles with as we land in Genesis 32 and continue our series, Glynnings from Genesis. Today, one more, we're talking about Jacob, so stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we enter the 32nd chapter of Genesis. We're hop, skip, jumping around in Genesis during our summer series. And in the 32nd chapter of Genesis, we're going to leap into verse 22 and then read through the end of the chapter. So verse 22 of Genesis chapter 32 starts off this way. The same night he, that's Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the for of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Father, Lord, we thank you for today's reading, Lord, and we look forward to the message you have for today as we talk about how in life Jacob had a wrestling match with God and then how, Lord, we can take that and apply it to our lives and see, yes, Lord, even in our lives, we wrestle at times with decisions and trials and temptations. We may even find ourselves at times wrestling with God in his will. But today, Lord, then we ask that you'll lead and guide and direct us as we understand the text and to see how it applies to our lives and our situation. So, yes, we are thankful for what we shall learn here today and what we can apply. Let us take this word today, Lord. Take it and use it upon this life. We thank you again now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you notice, leaping into the middle of a chapter or two-thirds into the chapter has a presupposition that you know things that's already happened prior to where you began reading, like we did today in verse 22. So we see that some things have happened. And it's evident that things are taking place and has happened because of the first five words that says, The same night he arose. It has a preposition you know exactly who he is. We know that's to be Jacob and then has a presupposition that you have every understanding of what has happened prior to that particular night when he arose. So let us not presuppose anything. Let's just back up a little bit and familiarize ourselves with what has happened to Jacob in his life, and especially since our last message pertaining to Jacob last Sunday. He's about to enter the greatest wrestling match of all time. But first recall that Jacob and his brother Esau, were twins. Jacob and Esau were twins born from their father Isaac and their mother Rebekah. They're talked about in Genesis chapter 25. They were twins, but they were not identical twins. If you know the story, you know Esau was a hairy man and red-headed, and he liked to go out in the field. He liked to hunt and have game. Whereas um, Jacob, Jacob was quite the opposite. He was smooth. He was not hairy and red-headed like Esau, and he did not like to go out into the field. In fact, he was more of a homebody. But also you find out as you read the story about the two boys, Esau and Jacob, that Esau, of course, he was the oldest. He came out first, although they were twins, who then, according to the tradition of the law, the elder brother, the oldest, would always get the patriarchal blessing. But remember last week in our text, we found that Jacob stole the blessing from his brother Esau. In the text we reviewed last week, we call that Jacob and his mother Rebekah pull a fast one on dad Isaac and brother Esau. Yeah, while Esau was out hunting for the game, preparing a meal for his father, Rebekah and Jacob plotted against each other against Isaac and Esau and prepared the meal so he would receive the blessing rather than Esau. And the plan worked to perfection. Yeah, it was deceptive, it was sneaky, it was manipulative. But nonetheless, Jacob received the patriarchal blessing rather than his oldest son, Esau. But here's the question for you. We stopped there with the reading, but here's the question. How do you think Esau responded when he came back in from the field hunting? How do you think Esau responded by the trickery with Jacob upon stealing the blessing? We didn't get to that part of the story. But if you read later in Genesis 27, you find out that his reaction is not pretty and maybe typical of what we would expect, because we find in verse 41, it says, now Esau hated Jacob. After it all said and done, he hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau then said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So basically, the reaction is that Esau, he's like rip-roaring, rip bit-stomping, dust-kicking mad. He's so mad at Jacob for taking the blessing, for stealing it from him, when he thought rightfully was coming to him that he's ready to kill his brother. So then Rebekah, again the mother, always intervening for her favorite son, Jacob, decides Jacob better get out of there. He better leave as soon as possible. And she makes arrangements then for Jacob to go off with her brother, whose name is Laban. But that's not the end of the story yet. The, more to the story is the fact that over the years now, Jacob has fled to live with Laban. And as he's there with Laban, who is his uncle, his uncle's about to become his father-in-law, because while he's there, he meets the love of his life. Her name is Rachel. But Laban, being a bit deceptive himself, goes to Jacob and says, if you'd like to have my daughter, Rachel, the love of your life, make an agreement, a contract with me to work with seven years for me, and then you can have my daughter, Rachel. Wouldn't Jacob does that? He had worked for seven years for Uncle Laban, and then all of a sudden it comes time after seven years to receive Rachel, the lover's wife. Well, Laban then, also a manipulative person himself, pulls a fast one on Jacob. The night before the wedding, listen to this, the night before the wedding, he gets Jacob all liquored up and substitutes the older daughter, Leah, for the wedding rather than Rachel. And then Jacob finds out he's married the wrong woman, and he goes back to Laban, and Laban says, Hey, Jacob, I'll make a deal with you. Work for me another seven years, and you can have Rachel. I'm thinking, what kind of story is this? But here's what's remarkable. This must have been some kind of beautiful woman, because Jacob agrees to work another seven years for his uncle, who's now his father-in-law in order to get Rachel. So in seven years, he gets both Leah, he already has her, the oldest daughter of Laban, and then in seven more years, he finally gets to love his wife, Rachel. So all that has happened as you get to Genesis 32. And it so happens then that after he's been away for 14 years at least, after 14 years, he has two wives, he has multiple children, we don't have time to get into how these two women compete for Jacob for the children. He says to himself, look, it's time for me to go home. But here's the tricky part then. Upon his return to the homeland, he must now face Esau, his brother again. And of course, he fears that even after 14 years, that Esau will still be so mad at him for stealing the blessing that he thinks that Esau still will have the desire to rid him of his life, to kill him. So that has happened. So getting back to verse 22, as you find now Jacob returning to his homeland, notice how he sends his family over first. while well, he stays on the opposite side of the Jabbok. It says in verse 22, the same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford to Jacob, the Javon. He took them across the stream, everything he had. But notice in verse 24, Jacob doesn't go with them. He's alone. But look what happens later in verse 24. Is there anything pertaining to his brother Esau, which is his greatest fear, that when he meets Esau, is he still going to be mad enough to kill him? But what rather happens, that you find later in verse 24, is he's about to enter the greatest wrestling match of his entire life. Jacob was left alone, and the men wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So picture it then, the best that you can. Jacob, by himself, all night long, wrestles with this man. He is in the match of his entire life, wrestling with this man. And before we go any further in the text, let me ask you a question. How many times have you found yourself in the middle of the night wrestling with the decision, a trial, a temptation? Something came to surface in the middle of the night. It wakes you up. You cannot go back to sleep. And you find yourself wrestling with the decision that must be made. Or maybe not literally wrestling, but just kind of indecisive about something that's happening, this trial, this temptation perhaps, maybe even a financial concern. I mean, for honest, it happens to us maybe more times than we even like to admit. When we have something deep on our heart and our mind, it, it troubles us so much that we just wake up suddenly and we cannot go back to sleep. It happened to all of us. It happened to me 20 years ago when I found myself in a wrestling match. It, it seemed unbelievable to say this, but I was actually indecisive as I was living in Mississippi and my dad had cancer about to die. I really didn't know if I wanted to go back and see Dad at that moment on his deathbed or whether I really wanted to remember him like I wanted to remember him in his health and strong as he was. So I was a bit indecisive. And I wrestled with the decision. Ultimately, as I read scripture, I felt it was necessary for me to go back and be with him as he did pass. But I wrestled with that at the moment. Or maybe 15 years ago, I was in a wrestling match when I began to wake up and seeing that God was calling me away from plant management. I've been in plant management in the chicken business for twenty five years, had a healthy salary, all the perks that go along with that, comfortable life, great home in Texas, and I, I felt him sensing calling me away from all that and I wrestled with that decision. It was not overnight. So fifteen plus years ago when he called me away from all that, I wrestled during the time to find out truly his will. And even as a seminary, nine years ago, I wrestled with the fact that God would take me from a church I was planted in and remove me from the church and send me overseas for 21 days on a mission trip to Thailand. And I could go on and on and on about the years of my life when I had these decisions and trials and temptations in which I wrestled. So if you're like me and like many other people, we've been in situations where we do wrestle with things that happen in life. So we ask ourselves, well, what can we do when that happens? And that's the question we're going to answer today. But before we do so, let's go back to the account and learn a little bit more about Jacob's situation. Notice we stopped at verse 24. Jacob's alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. It's important to see that Jacob is alone in verse 24. And he, it says a man wrestled with him. But recognize that we know the part of the story that is really not just a man. It is really God that he is wrestling with. He's wrestling through the night with God. So imagine the scene as it begins to unfold. Let me paint it for you a little bit. It was the darkest night, if you will, of Jacob's life. As he was sat reflecting upon his greatest fear, he has to go back and see his brother. He don't know what daylight will bring. And he finds himself in the darkest of night, maybe in the shivering cold of the mountain, and then trembling as the fact that he knows he must approach his brother Esau. As all this is happening, a hand suddenly seizes him. A powerful hand seizes him, puts him within his grasp. A mighty hold is upon Jacob. With the intent maybe being taken taking his life, I mean Jacob. No, he knows nothing about this man. His, his man is nameless, and he seizes him in the middle of the night when he is alone. But Jacob himself was no pushover. I mean, he rose mightily to the occasion, and that night began to unfold. Maybe, maybe six or seven hours. Didn't tell us how long it occurred, but. If it was all night long, it could have easily been six or seven hours. He's wrestling with not just a man, but with God. I mean, there's maybe burning sweat dripping from his hair, from his beard, and slipping extremities in this match. I mean, it's almost like physically a wrestling match with periods of labor breathing and renewed fury and gouging and pulling one another. And then even more rage and more pain maybe some thirst and some smothering frustration that happens in a physical wrestling match. However, as Jacob wrestled, something was happening. Unknown to Jacob, through most of the agonizing night, for however long that it was, he was wrestling with a divine being. And the concluding verses make it clear. Verse 29, Jacob overcomes. He says, Please tell me your name. He said, Why is it that you ask my name? But there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. It's the greatest wrestling match Jacob ever had in his life. Now, undoubtedly, Jacob was probably wrestled with decisions before. Remember how he wrestled in his mind, initially at least, about when Rebekah, his mother, came to him and said, Your father is going to give the blessing to your brother. Let's take the blessing from him. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But Jacob wrestled with that for just a moment, a brief moment. Because he thought, well, this is going to get, I'm going to get caught up in this. and And it's not going to be beneficial for me. So he wrestled with that just for a brief time. But so it's not his first wrestling match, but this is the greatest wrestling match he's ever had. So think about the situation now for Jacob. As he has verses 29 and 30 saying, I've seen God face to face, and he's been he's delivered me. So think about it. Jacob in this wrestling match, God was Jacob's ultimate and intimate enemy. For Jacob was wrestling with no one truly but God. And when you analyze the story and even dig deeper, then you begin to see that this wrestling match that's occurring between God and Jacob was a parable of Jacob's entire life. Was Jacob really kind of oblivious to this fact? But if you read all the account pertaining to Jacob, starting in Genesis chapter 25, a long narrative that goes all the way to chapter 32, seven, eight chapters talking about Jacob and his life, you begin to find then that Jacob has been characterized as a grasping struggle his entire life. He's been wrestling from time to time with all kinds of things. In chapter 25, he wrestled with his brother. In chapter 27, he wrestled with his father. In chapters 29 through 31, he wrestled with Uncle Laban, who became his father-in-law. And now you find in chapter 32, he's wrestling with God. Jacob has always struggled then with both men and with God. So then, as the two wrestled on through the night, Jacob actually had no idea, at least in the beginning, that he was in the grip of God's relentless grace. Again, maybe hours passed, and then we read, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. As I read that, and over and over again, I can't help but wonder, did the pain at that moment evoke, evoke an agonizing cry for Jacob? Did he cry out at the moment as he had this dislocated hip? Because in short, Jacob is reduced like a clinging doll; His disjointed leg dangling useless in the melee. But he hung on. Note that his opponent, God had done it all to Jacob to get his attention with a mere touch. A touch that dislocates such a powerful way tells us it had to be. If we didn't understand any part of the text, it had to be something of superhuman power. Going back to the WWE and perhaps what Chase is doing now with the pro, I mean, elite pro wrestling. There are staged matches. Maybe they don't like to admit that. But they're staged in that they have this one opponent who's going to have enough power to overcome the other. One exhibiting power. Because a lot of times those matches are decided before they even begin. And they have one person who's going to power and dominate the other. There's a give and take for a period of time to make it entertaining. But ultimately it seems that the decision of who will win the match is decided in the beginning. Of one person exhibiting power over the other. But here then, we have what is defined really as superhuman divine power of God, who's merely touching Jacob's hip, thereby disjointing. There's a question here that underlies the surface, as we recognize Jacob's opponent, and really then the power of God. And that question is this then. Is there any doubt that during the particular night, that God could have pinned Jacob any time he desired? And of course he could have. I mean, it's God. But the same thing can easily apply to all of us. As we go through our lives wrestling with decisions or financial issues or trials and tribulations, we sometimes fail to see the Almighty pulling and tugging against us while we're wrestling because we sometimes don't want to accept His will. So we're human. And like Jacob did, we we hold on really for all we got. And and holding on is tough. We're wrestling against God and his will. But give Jacob some credit. I mean, he held on and on and on and then ultimately the two men just break apart. But not until Jacob asked for the blessing in verse 26. I mean, as the story unfolds, we could for hours begin to dissect this story for even more further application and for more understanding. But We don't have enough time to do that. But as the story unfolds, there's one thing we've got to see. That's the fact that there's something that emerges that pertaining to this account that we cannot miss. So observe in verse 28 that Jacob is renamed Israel. He's no longer then, as he's renamed He's no longer the trickster. He's no longer the great deceiver, the conniving, manipulator. I mean, his name implies those things. But his name's been changed. So his new name, Israel, which means then the God strives. So we're marching towards something we've got to see in the account. A, 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 a central theme is emerging that we're kind of keying upon Because no longer is he Jacob, he is now Israel. No longer is he the manipulator, deceiver, the conniving sidekick for whoever. He is now Israel, he is now God's strife. So for Jacob at this moment, there's a rebirth that occurs. A defining moment occurs now in the life of Jacob, who is now Israel. And it presents a life-changing principle for all of us something we have to be able to see. A life-changing principle is emerging. The central theme of the text is this. That every believer in Jesus Christ must have a defining moment in their lives. And now Jacob then was having his defining moment. He had lived a life full of control, deceit, manipulation. If there is somehow something that God finds in Jacob worthy of redemption, then God knows the heart. And perhaps he sees in that Jacob's heart is one that genuinely wants to serve God and be used by God. But then God knows he must do something to chisel away the bad traits and characteristics in Jacob's life. So the new nature then was birthed in him that required a total trust in God. His name was changed in recognition of this defining moment. Verse 28, the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you struggle with God and with men and overcome. It's a remarkable story that illustrates a radical change in a person's life who is at best described as a great deceiver, a manipulator, a trickster. It's a rebirth, if you will. It's even the birth of a nation. A defining moment occurs in Jacob, now Israel's life. Now as we move to application, let us just be first of all honest. Let us just admit that we've all wrestled with God at times, as we struggle to do things in life, sometimes our own way. Because we have the decisions that come up in life, I mean, the temptations and trials, I mean, they are just different things that we're going to, in life, just wrestle about. I mean, we're going to be woke up in the middle of the night wrestling about all the things that occur, but there's other things that we get to wrestle about, such as this. We've wrestled at times, perhaps, in our life, we try to understand why bad things happen to good people. Why would God allow that? Why would, We wrestle with why would God allow 9-11? Why would it allow Holocaust? Why would God, We wrestle with why God would allow rape or child molestation or hunger, human trafficking, and so much more. Why does God allow that? We wrestle in our hearts and minds with things we see on TV and the media every day, the evil things we wrestle with God over all these types of things and much more in our lives. So returning into the question we had, we asked earlier, when we wrestle with these types of things and the decisions that come up in life are trials and tribulations, temptations, what can we do? We've all wrestled with God to some extent. So what can we do when we're wrestling with God? What can we learn from the story in Genesis 32 pertaining to Jacob as he wrestled with God? Well, there's four things that we find that we can do and perhaps must do when we're wrestling with God. And the first is to admit that your way doesn't work. That's hard to do. We are prideful people at certain times, and it's hard sometimes to admit that our way is not working. But are you just tired of getting nowhere? Trying and trying, but things seem to not be working? That was characteristic of Jacob in his life. And Jacob had to admit that his way doesn't work. As the story unfolds in Genesis 32, you're going to see that by the crossing the Jab- Jabbok, Jacob was going to enter into Esau's territory. We know that. That was his greatest fear. I'm going to have to cross this river and go back to the territory of Esau and face him before I can go back to my homeland. But God saw something even more significant unfolding than that. God knew that by Jacob crossing the Jabbok, that he'd be entering into God's land that he swore to Abraham that he would give to all of his children, the promised land. And God was not about to allow Jacob to enter the promised land, the land of his blessing and favor, on Jacob's own terms and strength. So, God appears in the form of a man, as is written, and wrestles with Jacob, not for sport, but in order to teach Jacob some important truths and lessons. So, maybe that's where we might be. Maybe we need to also learn some important truths as Jacob did. And the first, maybe, important truth to learn as a wrestling of God is to admit that, hey, your way doesn't work. My way doesn't work. Your way doesn't work. Human ways doesn't work against God. Isaiah 55, 8, 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So many times in life, we could be wrestling with God on His will. And we push ahead in our own way, in our own timing. And it's likely, if you've been there, you know it just ends up in frustration and ultimately failure. So the point is this. If we try to accomplish things in our own way, in our own time, in our own strength, it's most likely going to be unsuccessful. Because we'll never be successful trying to do things our own way. So question, is there anything this morning that you're trying to do in your own way, your own time, and your own strength? You may be here trying to give up a a bad habit that keeps resurfacing. And maybe you're trying to do it just by your own willpower. Maybe things like swearing or drinking or smoking or speeding or eating excessively. And whatever it is, if you're trying to do it your own way, your own time, your own thing, it's not going to work. You can't do it. We don't have that much power. So it's time then to admit that your way doesn't work. It is time to stop doing it your way and then maybe start doing it God's way. The first thing we must do when we wrestle with God is just simply admit that our way doesn't work. And then secondly, Believe in God's sufficiency. Is God sufficient for you? You say, what do you mean by sufficient? Well, sufficient or sufficiency means to have adequate provision or simply enough. So basically it is the question would be, is God enough for you or you need him more? Do you need God to prove to you that he is sufficient, that he's all you need? I mean, Jacob had to have that proof to him. When Jacob lived a big portion of his life, as we begin to unfold his life in the little segment we've we've done, doing things his way. Manipulative, deceit, conniving. He didn't seek sufficiency in God. So God proved to Jacob that his way wasn't going to work, that God was all that he needed, he disabled Jacob with a single touch that dislocated his hip. With his hip dislocated then, Jacob realized the greatness of the one whom he wrestled. With his hip dislocated, all Jacob could do was hold on and just cry for blessing from God. He ultimately learned of God's sufficiency. I mean, he realized the only way that God could provide him a blessing that he so desperately needed, was to believe in God and told that God is totally, completely sufficient. God told the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Yes, God is completely, totally sufficient. He's all that we need. And then thirdly, to find ourselves wrestling, just confess your sin. I find it interesting in verse twenty-seven of this particular text that God asked Jacob his name. I mean, it's like God walking through the garden or, or you know in the garden and Adam and Eve there and he asked where they are. I mean, God knew certainly where they were. He didn't need to ask the question. It's for our benefit, perhaps the question is asked. And God asked Jacob his name. I and mean, God already knew Jacob's name, obviously. But God knew everything then about Jacob. God knew that Jacob had lived a life of manipulation, deceit, and lies, and the great scheming that was going on in his life. He knew all this. He even knew his name meant supplanter or deceiver. And that's exactly what Jacob was doing in all of his life being manipulative. He stole the birthright from his brother. But God was completely aware of all this trickery. So he asked him his name, and Jacob responds his name. So he asked him his name because he wanted Jacob to confess his nature of who he was. Remember, Jacob means conniving. It means manipulative. It means supplanter. It means deceiver. So when Jacob spoke his name in one way, he was actually confessing what his life had been. So we learned then there's a life principle also emerging here that God will not bless a person unless they first confess their sin. Now think about that. Maybe you're wondering why God hasn't blessed you. You've been asking for a particular blessing or an answer to something ongoing in life. But now you see that God will not bless a person unless they first confess their sin. Is there some unconfessed sin? Because 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and then purify us from all unrighteousness. The fact is you have sinned, I have sinned, God knows we've all sinned. And he wants you to agree with him that what you've done is wrong and confess your sin so you can receive forgiveness and cleansing. So when you're wrestling, confess. Of course, admit it. Admit that you're a sinner. Also believe that God is sufficient. But also then, fourthly finally, desire a change of heart. As soon as Jacob spoke his name, thereby confessing his sin, notice how God changed his name, verse 28. And for the Hebrews, your name spoke of your character or your nature. And we've seen that when there was Jacob. When Jacob was Jacob, he was manipulative. He was the schemer. But now Jacob has had a change of heart. But changing Jacob's name, God was showing that Jacob had also had a change in his heart. His name would changed to Israel because he struggled with God and he had overcome. And The overcoming came only when he confessed his sin and his heart had been transformed. It wasn't that Jacob overcame God in a wrestling match, so much as it was that he overcame his sin by confessing and desiring to be changed, as it is with us. We must go beyond merely confessing our sinful heart and desire a changed heart, a holy, pure heart. In the book of Ezekiel, God promised to change our hearts when he said, a new heart also I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. Of course, we also see in Psalm 51.10 and change your heart the way that David received it. He said, Create me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Like Jacob, we must come to God with the desire to To be transformed totally and completely. A change of the heart. To be completely transformed. Just as it was, there's a story about Jerry Clower. Some of you may remember Jerry Clower. He's an older comedian. Years ago, if you're under the age of 30, you probably have no idea who I'm even talking about. But Jerry Clower, he's actually a pretty funny man. So Jerry Clower tells a story of a sheltered man who came to the city for the very first time. Hadn't seen the city hadn't seen modern-day technology, so he walked into a beautiful hotel lobby, and he stared at these incredible machines which kept opening and closing. We know them as elevators. But he kept looking at these machines opening and closing, and he was completely amazed at what took place. The transformation right before his eyes, he saw two men enter the machine dressed in suits. When the doors opened, three men came out in shorts. You think, how can that happen? He kept looking. He saw one man gave him three suitcases and then was completely gone when the door opened. The man wasn't even there no more. He said, man, this is wild. The excitement, the machine got to the best of him. It ain't over yet. It got to the best of him when he saw an old and wrinkled lady climb into the machine and shut the door. In just a few moments, a gorgeous young lady exited from the machine. He couldn't contain himself. He looked over the sun and said, Boy, go get your mama. He was ready for a total transformation. That's what we must have. A total transformation. It's always easier to see the transformation that needs to take place in the lives of someone else. But we can't see that our lives and our hearts can be transformed as well. So everyone needs to be transformed become a new person. This was Jacob's moment. It was the defining moment for even the nation Israel, and certainly for Jacob as he became Israel. And remember the central theme, the principle here is that every believer in Jesus Christ must have a defining moment in their lives. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And today we look at a story as we continue our situation and our series from Genesis. Again, the life of Jacob. and I mean, a lesson from Jacob. I mean, Jacob lived a life independent from God. He didn't need God. He selfishly controlled his situation by deceit and lies and manipulation. I hope that's not a snapshot of your life. But I ask, is there old habits coming back in your life over and over again as you're repeating? Are you wrestling with those types of things as they seemingly occur over and over? Are you wrestling with God in any particular situation with His will? It's so, it's simple four things. Admit your way doesn't work. Believe in God's sufficiency. Confess your sin. We're all sinners. And to finally, desire a changed heart. Allow your heart to be totally, completely transformed. When resting with God, these things may not be the end of, but they certainly help accept His will. Which is what all of us do. Accept God's will. By resting with God, accept His will. Father. Lord, thank you for this message today as it talks about some things that we need to understand as we do wrestle with certain things that are occurring in our lives. Or sometimes, Lord, we just wrestle about why things evolve and why things happen to other people. So, Lord, today as we have this message talking about wrestling with God, let's recognize there are steps in which we can use to help us ultimately accept your will. I pray today, Lord, for all of us may be wrestling with you for any particular situation, that today we would accept your will and no longer wrestle with you as we begin to leave here today. So let's be thankful for what you provided for us here today. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.